This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. What is Missouri's public perception of nuclear waste sites? Missouri S&T has been awarded a grant to gauge that perception. How to handle those pesky Japanese beetles. MU Extension will be along with some tips to help. And do those traps really work? Missouri high school athletes who sign a letter of intent to play for an in-state college or university will soon be able to cash in on endorsement deals. Governor Mike Parson has signed a bill into law that will let high school students make money. Elisa Nelson talks to State Representative Curtis Gregory, who led this effort in the Missouri legislature. You know, I've got to thank a lot of people for helping get this done um, this year. Um, we played a little bit of smoke and mirrors um, in the theory this year. I wanted to have an actual standalone bill filed um, to get a hearing on so we could, you know, move on that if we needed to. And, um, you know, it just got to be so late in the year when we actually started moving on it and, and got all of what we wanted to do put together in a package um, that this would not have gotten done without um, State Senator Nick Shore um, from over in um, St. Charles County. And um, he was the, the senator that actually attached it in the Senate onto this House bill that was carried and sponsored by Representative Mike Henderson carried by Senator um, Carla Esslinger. You know, without their help, it wouldn't have gotten done this year. I was just glad that we found a vehicle to um, um, stick it on. And so I, I owe a lot of credit to them for helping me out with it. Um, but what we've done this year was really pushing the envelope. And I, and I used the moniker a few times that we're not only pushing the envelope, we've done licked it and shut it and put a stamp on it and dropped it in the mailbox. <laughs> And um, so we're, we've gone out and the, the biggest one that I like the most that would have been uh, a lot of fun for me when I was playing, um, especially was um, you mentioned, you know, potentially high school athletes. Um, I really view like once you sign your national letter of intent for all the purposes, you're part of that college team at that point. And uh, so the biggest provision we put in there was in, in the state of Missouri, if you're a Missouri high school athlete, once you sign your national letter of intent, intent you can begin receiving compensation for your name, image, and likeness. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that we got that done, especially to give us a recruiting advantage here in state. Um, because now, you know, Arkansas passed the same verbiage and language. I think Colorado did the same thing also. Um, and I just want to make sure that we got an advantage to keep our in-state talent home. Because I remember back the years when I played in 07 and 08, we had a lot of great home state talent on those football teams. In 2007, 10 of the 11 starters were from the state of Missouri. The only starter in the 2007 season on the offense not from the state of Missouri was our quarterback, Chase Daniel. And so just knowing that we can produce the talent here in state to win big football games is huge. Um, but then we also um, put some other provisions on there saying the NCAA and or SEC slash governing conference, because we're not talking about just the University of Missouri. That's where I'm partial to. So I'll probably use terms partial to them. Can't step in and interfere with an NIL deal that a student athlete might be receiving as long as it's following school parameters and guidelines. And so I'm just really excited about it. You can read many different articles. Um, I'm sure we can probably link one here online to you of, of what the bill actually says and does. But um, we're really pushing it and um, making sure that Missouri is on the forefront of NIL and um, going to attract and retain you know, the best athletes across the country to come play ball here in the state of Missouri, whether it be at the University of Missouri, Northwest Missouri State, UCM, you know, basketball players at Mizzou or SLU or heck down even um, Cape Girardeau. They were in the NCAA tournament this year. So just really trying to give our in-state colleges and universities an edge in recruiting. So is this for public and private, just to be care uh, clear? Yes. Okay. Okay. Under the bill, would it uh, allow out-of-state student-athletes 
who have signed with a Missouri school? I don't think so. Because I, 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 the way I believe it and understand it is you're sort of governed by those when it comes to that high school provision, that's where you're governed by your in-state stuff. Um, the rest of it, we're, we're giving um, our coaches and anyone involved in the athletic department more of an opportunity to help facilitate those deals. Because as a business owner, yeah, it's great to be meeting with the athlete, but I want to have some face-to-face -face time with the head coach. Like if I'm going to be paying this player X amount of dollars to represent my business and my company, you know, I, I'd love to have some, you know, FaceTime with the head coach saying, hey, I'm going to make sure this kid stays in line and, and, you know, holds up the ends of the bargain that I'm going to expect from anyone endorsing my company. State Representative Curtis Gregory here to talk about a bill that is awaiting a decision from the governor. It would let Missouri high school athletes uh, start uh cashing in on endorsement deals as soon as they sign up to play for a Missouri college or university. Uh, the state legislature passed that bill to update Missouri's NIL law, and he was behind that effort. You had talked about some other states, uh, Arkansas, Colorado, or wherever. Arkansas, Colorado, um, I think Texas, Oklahoma, um, have all done some of the similar things that, that we did this year. Um, one other provision I, that we put in there this year was actually saying that NIL deals could be discussed with recruits um, because it only that only makes sense. You know, before it used to be, you know, we're going to sit here and we're going to talk about the facility plans. You know, by the time you're a sophomore, we're going to have a new stadium. By the time you're a senior, we're going to have a new locker room and weight, weight room facilities and all these other things that we're going to talk about. It only made sense to talk about what, can we offer you an NIL if you come to, you know, XYZ University here in the state? Um, so that was something else we put in put in this um, statu new statute also. Um, another thing we also updated was instead of just one financial literacy course a year, it's got to be two, and it's throughout the calendar year instead of academic years. Um, we had it written at one point as a former athlete myself. This was a piece that um, SLU actually said, they're like, can we make it a calendar year as opposed to academic year? Because obviously athletes are pretty darn busy during the academic years with their respective sports. The summertime is usually a little more of a downtime, and so it only made sense to say calendar years so we can utilize those summer months for the uh, financial training also. So, okay, do you think, uh, I, I'm curious what you think of Missouri's bill on NIL and how, um, because since other states have done this, do we, does Missouri have uh, some items within that bill that maybe um, we have more of a, an advantage over some of the other states? Oh, What's for sure. I, I would say, um, I would say we're top five. Um, and it's been funny now that we've gotten ours passed. That's one of the smoke and mirrors things I referenced in a, an earlier interview of why we waited so long with some of the provisions because we didn't want to come out like in March, you know, when a lot of other legis state legislatures are in session so they can see what we're doing. You know, it's a copycat league when it comes to offense and defense, and it's going to be a copycat, you know, legislative deal also when it comes to NIL. And uh, so that's why we waited as long as we could. And now that we have ours passed, we've seen other states somewhat copy that language which I think um, maybe Michigan and also New York is trying to do some of the same things that we put into law this year. Is the financial literacy part like, okay, if you all get to the NIL, you really need help, or, or to the NFL, you really need help trying to learn how to manage your money. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where you got that part from. It, it only made sense. Um, when I when I got to Carolina, some of the, the, all the rookies had to go through financial training um, where they, oh. you know, there was some people from, oh, 
Merrill Lynch, I think, is headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so there were some people from from there talking about investing and, hey, you are going to have to pay taxes type type thing. And um, it only it's only it only makes sense. You know, if you've got um, 18, 19 year old kid that, you know, basically fresh out of high school and they sign a half a million dollar deal for, you know, whatever it might be that, you know, there should be some smart training um, financial courses that go on of hey, maybe you should invest some of this. You know, here's different investment strategies. Um, you will have to pay taxes on it. So don't go spend $500,000 because you just got a $500,000 check. So just trying to make sure that these you know, young young men and women are um, financially prepared, you know, because they could potentially make enough money to set themselves up for the rest of their life. Look down at LSU. There's two basketball, basketball player and gymnasts down there, some of the highest um, rated NIL deal in the country. They're making money that, is going to set them up for the rest of their lives and you'll potentially set their future families up for the rest of their life. Anything else you want to mention about NIL? I wish we had it when I played. I probably wouldn't have been the highest earner, but you know, maybe it would have been an F-150 pickup for one of the local Ford dealerships or IHOP, um, you know, Pancake House or the local steakhouse up in Columbia. But it would have been a great thing. Maybe it's because Mizzou has some of the worst fans back in the Big 12 day. At least when it comes to Husker fans, they were terrible. <laughs> Are you a Nebraska fan? Yes, they were terrible to Nebraska fans. I, I remember the 2008 game when Nebraska was having a really bad season, and that game was in Lincoln, Nebraska. And it was the weird Nebraska fans were actually the nicest fans we ever played against. And it almost threw you off your game because you, you go to Norman, Oklahoma, the fans are right on top of you. You know, you're just getting heckled and, and cursed at and things thrown at you. Um, same thing down at Oklahoma State, like our chairs when we went on the sideline were right. I mean, the fans can see everything we're drawing on the board. But we go to Nebraska in 2008 in the hotel. The fans are saying take it easy on us tonight. You know, we know we don't got a very good team, you know, try not to beat us up too bad, you know, going through, walk through the, the underneath of the stadium and there's fans, Nebraska fans lined up and they're like giving you high fives and saying, let's play a good game tonight and you keep it clean and don't hurt us too much. And it just throws you off your game. Cause you're, you're, you're in your mode. You're listening to your, you know, I listen to some, some heavy rock and, you know, to get pumped up for the game. And then you know, it's like they're playing classical symphony music as you're walking through and it almost like takes you back down. But we had a great night in Nebraska in 2008. I think the final score was like 52 to 10 or something along those lines and really put it on the Huskers. I want to thank State Representative Curtis Gregory for joining Show Me Today to talk about his bill on NIL and updating that to include high school students. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day. Among children, the numbers are even higher. To ensure Missouri children have the food they need to thrive, Missouri's agricultural community launched Drive to Feed Kids six years ago. Visit MoFarmersCare.com slash drive to learn more and join the efforts. I see you finally got a new helmet. I did. Bought it cheap online. <laughs> Follow me. We'll turn off here. I'm right behind you. Watch the cars. They can be crazy. Patty, no! Are you okay? Somebody do something! Was this young man hit by a car? Yes, and his helmet is smashed. It's a brand new helmet. It's probably a fake. Fakes cause real harm. You're smart. Buy smart. 
Brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Discover the fascinating world of nature right here in Missouri with Discover Nature Notes. Today, let's jump into the weird world of spittle bugs. You'll never look at bugs the same way again. Spittle bugs literally grow in a protective bubble. You may see these bubbles that look like spit on plants this time of year. The spittlebug nymph finds protection from the weather and predators while feeding and growing inside the bubbles. Adult spittlebugs are high-jump champions in nature, leaping more than 100 times their length in height. By comparison, that would be like you or me jumping over the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. The acceleration used for jumping is a force more than 400 times the force of gravity. So when you see the bubbles, just rest assured you're witnessing the growth of nature's high jumper, the spittlebug. Discover more with Missouri Department of Conservation at discovernaturenotes.com. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Welcome back to Show Me Today. A group of researchers from Missouri S&T have been awarded a $2 million grant from the U.S. Department of Energy to gauge the public's perception of nuclear waste sites. Shoib Uzman is an associate professor of nuclear engineering and radiation science at Missouri S&T. He chats with Anthony Morbeth on his research and more about nuclear energy and waste. Yes, this is a DOE grant to, for a consent-based siting. Uh, earlier on, the legacy waste, and legacy waste is the waste generated during the core war for the defense-related projects. Uh, those uh, wastes were dispersed in different locations, including in St. Louis, without consent or even knowledge of those communities. So DOE has learned from that experience and to dispose of the fuel from um, running these reactors for power production, uh, we want to take an approach which is consent-based, so the community should consent to hosting it, and that is uh, the goal of DOE. This project is to understand the concerns of those communities who were exposed to uh, nuclear waste from, from the um, legacy waste in St. Louis and other areas. Uh, I must say that this is not there to change their opinion, rather to capture their opinion about the nuclear waste. Uh, we cannot change the past. This waste was placed decades ago. 
that have impacted their lives in one way or the other, but we can learn from their past to build a better future. That's the goal of this project. So you're going to assess and document the concerns of the St. Louis area residents who uh, live near areas where there was uh, nuclear waste uh, from the time of World War II up to the Cold War. Uh, Dr. Usman, I'm, I'm curious, is a majority of the consensus that you've heard uh, rather negative, as in, we don't want this here, we didn't want this here, we want our backyard cleaned up? We have not collected any data yet. So we don't have uh, the, the sense, but in the process of writing this proposal, when we approach the community, community leaders, consultants, and uh, other nonprofit groups, they were not very excited about even this project to get the uh, uh, get their opinion. So there is some resentment about uh, that waste being in their, their backyard. Uh, Again, to clarify, we are not bringing any additional waste. We just want to capture their feelings. So let's talk about this from the point of view of the U.S. Department of Energy. Are they looking at possible new places and sites to store nuclear waste? Yes, spent fuel is a is a waste and also a resource. It has lots of isotopes that can be used for medical purposes and some industrial purposes. So it's it's uh, spent fuel is the correct term. How to use it, whether to prepare it for recycling into the reactor, those are the questions still lingering on. And uh, Arkansas has um, expressed interest in bringing some of that material to their state, provided that recycling is done within their own state. So there, there is material on that, and you have to dig into it yourself, but I have cursory knowledge about that. And how is nuclear waste stored and recycled? Uh, currently, it is only stored, not recycled in U.S. Uh, initially, when these are uh, fuel assemblies, 17 by 17 metrics of long fuel rods, slightly thicker than a pencil, and it goes into the reactor. Hundreds of these assemblies are there. And when they're discharged from the reactor after producing the power that we need to to power our grids, they are stored underwater in storage pools. And they have been there for, for decades. Recently, DOE has started an initiative to store them, what is called dry storage in concrete casks. And some of that fuel have been moved to dry storage. Now, the question is that dry storage is still sitting at the reactor sites where the reactor uh, used that fuel. Uh, it needs to go out to a permanent disposal site. Yucca Mountain was the one that was being planned, but it was uh, terminated. The project was put on hold. And for for the, the short period of time between we decide for a permanent disposal site and now we need interim storage site. And for that, we are trying to get consent from the communities who would host that.
We're talking with Dr. Shoa Boosman, Associate Professor of Nuclear Engineering and Radiation Science at Missouri S&T. Along with a group of researchers, he has been awarded a $2 million grant from the U.S. Department of Energy to gauge the public's perception of nuclear waste sites. And I want to ask this because obviously you're, you're sort of an expert on this field. Are there misconceptions about nuclear waste and nuclear energy? Yes, there are, because nuclear started with, the word nuclear started with a destruction. The first time I think the general population heard of nuclear was the nuclear weapon being used in World War II. So from get-go, it has a negative connotation. And that continued and with a couple of accidents that took place, um, Three Mile Island, uh, Fukushima more recently, and Chernobyl, people have a fear of uh, radiation leaking out. Uh, our goal as scientists and engineers are to keep it as safe as reasonably possible. All the activities that we would do in life will have some risk. What is the acceptable level of risk? is what we are talking about. It's like the example I give that, well, cars have their own risk of driving, but the alternate was to continue riding back of a horse, and that will have its own risk. So the life that we have gotten used to does require energy, and that energy has to come at some cost, including some risk. And burning, say, for example, fossil fuel will have its own risk to the environment that will cause health and other issues. So they're alternate and we have to evaluate risk associated with that benefit that we are going to get out of it. So balancing that is the goal of scientists and engineers. It will be a lie if I were to say that there is zero risk associated with nuclear. there is no nothing like zero risk. As I joke with my friend that the zero risk, the only person who can claim that is a dead person. No risk, everything is gone, nothing is to be lost. Could you talk a little bit about the efficiency of nuclear energy? The main difference is how you get the heat. After you generate the heat and get the steam, then most of the uh, most of the functioning thereafter to use that heat with the steam to run a turbine, running the turbine and a generator to generate electric power is identical with minor differences. The heat source in nuclear is coming from the nuclear fission and the heat source for fossil fuses by burning the fossil material, which gives off heat. Uh, by burning fossil material, we generate the byproduct of that, ashes and some flue gases, which are not environmentally friendly, not health friendly. And so I'll close by asking this question. You're trying to educate the residents in St. Louis about nuclear waste. You're not trying to change their perception in a way. Um, Is there anything different other than what we talked about than what you would mention and or bring up to them? Absolutely not. Our goal will not be to change their opinion. It will be a disservice to our sponsors, namely DOE, to try and change their opinion. They want to capture their true opinion without our influence. So the goal is to get their opinion so that we do not repeat things that will that will hurt the community. 
rather educate them and gain the trust of a community who would like to um, host this spent fuel in their in their neighborhoods. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our our roads. It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No. But you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes. But if you're ever concerned about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, 
someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Welcome back to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack, and we like to visit and catch up with MU Extension. And um, last time we talked with Donna Oftenberg about heat and drought for plants, and uh, we want to talk about Japanese beetles. Uh, these things are, uh, are a pain. Donna, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. What do they look like? Explain to our listeners what a Japanese beetle looks like. They are about the size of your pinky nail. And they are typically an iridescent green and bronze. And they will have white tufts around the edges of the beetle. They're, they're cool looking, uh, but boy, they cause a lot of damage in our garden. They sure do. Um, they eat up a lot of leaves. They'll eat fruit. They'll eat um, certain vegetables. So they can really do a number on garden plants. When do uh, Japanese beetles show up and how long do they stick around? So typically we see them starting at the end of June. So it can be the third and fourth week of June that they start showing up and the populations build in the month of August. And by the second week of September, they have diminished. So it's really we're only dealing with them for about six to eight weeks. But in that time, though, they can uh, cause a, a lot of damage. When they attach themselves, how many are we looking at? Is it um, a handful of, of beetles or can you have... Uh, you know, dozens? How, how many could you possibly see? You could have dozens, hundreds, actually. You know, and it, it depends on the food source. Um, they have a pheromone that they put out uh, when one finds something yummy. So when they land on something that they dearly love, like crepe myrtles, they will send out that pheromone that says, come get it, boys, I found something good. And so then, next thing you know, you got 20, then you got 40, then you got... So, so the numbers keep building and building be, because of that pheromone that they send out. Um, and, and so they can get in very high numbers. Donna Oftenberg with MU Extension. We're talking about Japanese beetles, and, and you talk about them sending out uh, their bat signals uh, for their buddies to show up. Uh, I, I don't know if other people think of beetles like this, but when I think of beetles, I just think of them crawling around. But, but Japanese beetles fly. And, and they're very mobile. Yeah. How far will they travel? I, you know, I think that they, they have the ability to tra travel for miles and miles, especially when they are trying to locate the food sources that they love. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to say, they spend, what, about uh, nine, ten months in the ground. Um, what's a good way to, to try to control them? You know, a lot of people do a lot of different things. Um, I know one of the most common things that gardeners I know do is they get a hot, uh, hot sudsy water in a bucket, and they will just go and brush the beetles off their plants into a bucket. Uh, there are chemicals that you can use if, if you don't mind spraying. You know, anything that is uh, a pyrethrin, bifenthrin, um, cyfluthrin, there's a lot of different chemicals out there that are labeled for Japanese beetles. Um, then they do have Japanese beetle traps. Now, if you're going to use the Japanese beetle traps, 
do not put them near your plants because it will only bring in Japanese beetles because it's got a pheromone card in it. Ah. And so my thought on using a trap is you put it, use it the opposite way, put it away from your garden. And so when I say away, I'm talking about an acre away. I'm talking about two acres away. Um, And that way it's pulling the Japanese beetles away from your garden versus drawing them to your garden. And don't forget to change, uh, you know, empty the bag and change it um, because those bags fill really, really quickly. And they really say with the traps that only about uh, a quarter of the beetles will actually end up in the bag. Three quarters of the beetles will be left um, in the local area feeding on plant materials. And so that's why I don't like traps. But like I said, if you want to try using a trap, you want to use it in the opposite manner that it's supposed to. Yeah. Put it away from your garden. Yeah, because I was going to ask you that, Donna. It's like, all right, well, listen, if I haven't had any issues, uh, why would I want to bring them to my area to try to keep them away? So, Correct. yeah. Correct. If you if you haven't seen Japanese beetles, don't do anything about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's when you start seeing them, that's when you start wanting to do something. <laughs> you talk about them Talk about them flying. We had them uh, for a couple of years on our rose bushes, uh, and I don't know if you've ever uh, heard of that or experienced that. But um, yes. my my <laughs> funny story: my wife went over there. Uh, we had had them the the one summer, and kind of you know, oh, we got rid of them. You know, forget or they were gone. It's like okay, you know, they did a little bit of damage, but the rose bushes came back. They were fine. Next uh, summer, my wife went over to the area and <laughs> was weeding and kind of spooked them. <laughs> They all took off flying, <laughs> and so they they kind of moved on her, and uh, and it scared her, and it's like, oh, they're, they're back again. So, why why do they show up, and then after a couple of years, all of a sudden they're they're gone? Well, a lot of things can be happening. Uh, you know, drought can really play a part in in uh, our numbers. Um, you know, on, we find that in years of drought, um, the adults cannot get into the ground again to lay their eggs. And even if they do succeed in getting their eggs laid, then the dryness um, causes the eggs to dry up and die. Um, So then there are some predators. There's some natural biologicals that are happening in our environment that has also taken the numbers down. Um, So there's just a lot of reasons why, you know, some years they show up in great quantity and other years they don't. So while the heat and drought, we talked about that recently, Donna, uh, may not be good for our plants, it certainly helps uh, in the fight against Japanese beetles. And it helps a lot in, in different, and uh, in, in, in other insects, too. Yeah. Um, and But de- definitely with Japanese beetles, it will aid in, the, in decreasing the numbers. All right. So we're battling beetles. Uh, Donna Oftenberg with MU Extension. Thank you for all the tips and advice. Great to have you on again. Well, thank you for having me. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show me today. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. Missouri Farmers Care Drive to Feed Kids opens the door for every Missourian to make a difference in the fight against hunger in our state. All proceeds are dedicating to feeding Missouri's network food banks who work daily to alleviate hunger. Visit MOFarmersCare.com slash drive to learn more and join the effort. Since Missouri's agricultural community joined together to help support the launch of Missouri Farmers Care Drive to Feed Kids in 2017, the drive has generated 11,224,132 meals that have all been donated to Missourians in need. 
Together, we can get Missouri food products on the plates of hungry Missouri children and their families. Visit MoFarmersCare.com drive to learn more and join the effort. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. Missouri Farmers Care Drive to Feed Kids opens the door for every Missourian to make a difference in the fight against hunger in our state. All proceeds are dedicating to feeding Missouri's network food banks who work daily to alleviate hunger. Visit MOFarmersCare.com drive to learn more and join the effort. One in seven Missouri children is food insecure, not knowing where their next meal may come from. Drive to Feed Kids is a year-round effort of Missouri farmers, agribusiness, and farm groups to address food insecurity in our state. Through meal packing events, gifted food products, hog processing, and monetary donations, the ag community provides support to the agencies serving our most vulnerable citizens. Visit MoFarmersCare.com drive to learn more. That's MoFarmersCare.com drive. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanonorg help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today. One Choice is the latest health standard in the battle against drug use. Today, Dave Clawson talks to addiction psychiatrist and vice president of the Institute for Behavior and Health, Dr. Caroline DuPont, from the Pathways to Prevention podcast. Teens and adults that care about them need to know that the one choice of no use of any alcohol, nicotine, marijuana, or other drugs is a realistic goal, and that many teens are already making that choice. Let's just jump right into one choice. What is one choice? Yeah, one choice is a is something that we came up with from with IBH over time as we looked at our prevention data and we thought what are we actually seeing here and we realized we were seeing some things that were actually really exciting. And so three big ideas. First, that the developing brain is uniquely vulnerable to substance use and to other traumas. Second, that for teens, all substance use is related. So it's best not to talk about substance specific, but to think about substance use in general. And third, that this growing number of teens that are choosing not to use any substances. But first, we're going to talk about kind of the basics here. Way to think about this is that we're denormalizing youth drug use. For decades, there's been an assumption that it's a normal part of growing up 
to try drugs. That's part of being a teenager. That's part of learning for yourself. And that is, has been a crazy idea all along. But the new data that we're talking about and we're going to present to you today shows just how, how wrong that is. But it would be a little bit like normalizing not wearing seatbelts and saying what we want to have is kids figure out for themselves whether they need a seatbelt or not. And if you tried to do that, what do you think they'd find? You would think that was crazy, but but people would say that well, that's a dumb thing to do. We know the standard is well. So what one choice is, is a new health standard, and it grows out of the changes that have been made in the last four decades by American youth themselves. The leaders of this are the youth, and we're catching up with that and want to pr pr encourage other people to get into the idea of what normalizing not using just the way we normalize wearing seatbelts. Our one choice message is just as comprehensive, no use of any alcohol, marijuana, nicotine, or other drugs under the age of 21 for reasons of health. And so as I just explained, we list out those things to make sure we're all on the same page. If you want to say, why don't you just say drug-free? I'm, I'm all for that. I love drug-free, but it's important to make sure that we're all saying the same thing. The second component of this one choice is the health standard that Bob was talking about. We have a lot of health standards we talk to young people about that we're really comfortable with. We talk about it all the time, like always wear your bike helmet, wear your seatbelt, eat healthy food. And we don't kind of hesitate to have those standards because they're based in science, because there's a lot of data that shows that those things are important. And it turns out we have also a lot of data and science that shows that it's really important for youth not to use any of those substances during the time that their brain is developing. So the first component of one choice is this developing brain. And the developing brain is something that is a continu continually developing from birth through the, about the mid-20s. And if I could show you this slide in person, I would love it because it's so beautiful. And maybe you've seen it, the slides that show that the brain is many different parts of it are continuing to develop and grow and change. And that means that anything that happens to that brain during those years can have like a really big negative impact on that person. And so if if you're worried about the present, like right now it could harm them, but it could also harm them in their future, in terms of their, their future well-being, for example, their educational attainment or their future career even. And so we think about brain protection when we think about concussion pro protocols, but we also can think about it in terms of substance use, which also can really powerfully impact that developing brain. We have really important data that shows that the earlier the use and also the more the use is, the more likely it is that that person will develop a substance use disorder and also have other bad outcomes. And I mentioned that before, that early substance use is associated with things like poor educational attainment, and that's going to have a lifelong impact on that person. When we talk about one choice, you might be wondering, why is it called that? We haven't really focused on that, what that means yet. And and what we mean by that is that for teens, all substance use is related. And really what it boils down to is a choice whether to be someone who chooses to use drugs or chooses not to use drugs. And the way we figured that out was by looking at this big national data. 
we looked at the data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. This is nationally collected data that's communities all across the country. They looked at 17,000 youth from the ages of 12 to 17, and they collect lots and lots of data. That's not our data, but that data is available for other people to use. And the Institute for Behavior and Health looked at that data and asked of that data a different question. And we asked a question that hadn't been looked at before. We asked, is the use of one substance by adolescents associated with the increased risk for using any other substance, regardless of sequence? So if you use one drug, are you likely to use other drugs? And what we found was, wow, yes, that is turns out to be a gold mine of information. We can look at it, and we will, with several different drugs, but I want to just remind us that we're talking about youth. And for youth, the three most common drugs are alcohol, nicotine, and marijuana. So those are the questions that we asked. So we took that data of that 17,000 youth, 12 to 17, and we divided it into two groups. The people who said, yes, in the past month, they used marijuana. Nothing about quantity or anything like that. Just, yes, I used marijuana in the past month. And the other group of 12 to 17-year-olds were people who said, no, I did not use any marijuana in the past month. And that's the only distinction between these two groups of people that we looked at. And then we looked at within those groups, the people who did not use any marijuana and the people that did, and we saw how much of other drugs did they use? Did they drink alcohol? Did they use nicotine? And did they use other drugs? And what we saw was if they said, no, I didn't use any marijuana in the past month, then their risk of using other substances was really low. So if you look at it as a bar graph, they're these little teeny bars because they were very unlikely to use other drugs. But when you looked at that a second group, which is the 12 to 17 year olds who said, yes, I did use marijuana in the past month. The bars are much bigger. They're much more likely to be using alcohol, to be using nicotine and to be using other drugs. And they're really dramatically more likely to use alcohol in the scary ways that we worry about with kids like binge drinking, which is five or more drinks in one setting or heavy alcohol use, which is repeat binge drinking. So there's this very clear correlation between the use of marijuana and the use of all those other substances. So then we said, well, is that just true for marijuana? Is that something that's unique to that? So we looked at that same big group again, that 17,000, but this time we divided it into the two different categories. One were the kids who said, no, I didn't use any alcohol in the past month. And the other group is the 12 to 17 year olds who said, yes, I did use alcohol in the past month. This time we did divide it a little bit more. There was some more data to use. So we did divide it by people who use any alcohol versus the people who said binge drinking and the people who were heavy alcohol users. But the main key is the division between the non-use, no alcohol use and the yes alcohol use. And when you look at those, those students who said, I did not use any alcohol in the past month, little tiny bars, which means they're very unlikely to have used other substances. But the students who said, yes, I did use alcohol in the past month, were much more likely to be using other substances, marijuana, nicotine, and all other drugs that could be opioids or stimulants or anything like that. And so if you just visualize it, you can just 
glance at it and see little bars unlikely to use other substances if they haven't used any alcohol and wow, much more likely to use substances with any alcohol in the past month. And so we said, let's keep going with this. Let's look some more. And so we looked at nicotine and it held exactly the same. So if they did not use any nicotine in the past month, they were unlikely to be using any other substances. But if they did use nicotine in the past month, they were much more likely to use those other substances. And these are really dramatic differences in each of these categories. These aren't like, oh, well, it's, I guess it's statistically significant, but what does it really mean in real life? You know how sometimes science is like that and you're like, I, I don't see how this really correlates to real life. No, this data is kind of in your face data that's, that really shows wow, there is a direct correlation. And what this means is that people are making the choice to use. And once they make the choice to use one drug, any drug, they are much more likely to be using other drugs. And this is kind of usually where I get to the point that when I'm talking to a live audience, people are like, well, that's nice from a kind of idealistic standpoint. But seriously, most high school students use and most, most, you know, it's just normal for them to use. So I'm not sure who these random outliers you're talking about are that are these people who are not using. And sure, maybe they're just at home. I don't know what, what the negative stereotype would be that they're just at home being socially isolated and lonely. And that's why they don't use any of their substances. And so that's when I'm like, oh no, we have more data to show you. 100% available on our website. So you can go to our IBH website, ibhinc.org, or you can go to our One Choice Prevention website, which is uh, onechoiceprevention.org. And both places, it's available to you. And as a matter of fact, it's not just available. We want you to use it. We are excited to have you use it. And we have what's called a one choice community where you can actually join this community and be part of it and get this information to use in your, whatever your prevention program is, whatever you're already doing, all the hard work that you're already doing. We're not replacing that. We're like, here, have this data to help you have this messaging to help you in the great work that you're doing. And we'll even like put your logo on it. You can get tools and strategies to talk to young people in your life at talkaboutitmo.com. That's talkaboutitmo.com. You're listening to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show me today.